0: The NFL playoffs keep rolling along, with the league down to their final four teams. Meanwhile, Seattle's search for Pete Carroll's successor continues, as big offseason decisions await. ESPN Seahawks beat reporter Brady Henderson joins us to make sense of it all. Let's light him up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my post-pubescent producer, Mike Barwin, this
1: is the Cigar Thoughts podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Oh, my God. Uh, Well, I don't know after that, but yeah, I mean, it's... It's conference championship time, buddy. Uh, we are at the final four of the NFL. The Seahawks are unfortunately not among that final four, but narratives abound. I think that we're both pretty excited sure for do. the football that lays ahead of us this weekend. And yeah, man, this is what it's all about. Down to uh, down to the the cream of the crop. How are you? This is
0: this is the good shit right here, man. This is the good shit. I love the final four. Like from last weekend on, I think just peak football you're seeing the best teams it's a it it comes down to a pure styles makes fights situation super excited for it and you know the seahawks themselves they got some hefty choices to make this offseason and that starts with the head coach of course now it's been a couple weeks since they announced that they're moving on from pete carroll mike who are you pulling for
1: i've given this a good amount of thought and I know we'll get into this with Brady throughout the course of this episode and how the league has moved towards hiring the young upstart offensive minds, a lot of which stem from the Shanahan tree and the the McVay mm-hmm. branch and so on and so forth. You've got two coaches slash play callers in your division that you have not been able to beat for years. And yes the first step to being a good team is winning the games in your division. Mm -hmm. I am leaning towards Mike McDonald for the simple fact that, you know, I miss good defense, man. The Seahawks haven't had a great defense in a long time. And they've got personnel to put together what I think should be a good defense. And so, you know, that could be an indictment of Carroll, of Clint Hurt, of all the above. But I think that it would be cool to see the Seahawks hire somebody that can deploy the weapons that they have, including Jamal Adams potentially. I think that somebody that can right. weaponize him to the peak of what we were hoping he could be and what he once was um, is paramount for the Because they
0: they've tried that for the last three years and it just it hasn't really worked. And it's yeah. it's so funny because and and I'm sure we're, you know I'm not sure if I'll get the opportunity to necessarily say this um, during the show when we have Brady on, but. Like my number 1 guy is Mike McDonald because I care the most about beating Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay and also like don't overlook the trajectory that the Cardinals are on. Yep. So it's like you look at Mike McDonald's track record like he's beat all those guys and you know he's held them to from an EPA perspective well under what they normally do in terms of, of offense. So yeah, McDonald's my number one. I'm right there with you. and And I'm excited to hear what Brady has to say about it. But first, if you're listening or watching us right now, hopefully it's because you like the show. And if you like the show, there are a few ways you can support it. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, take a couple of seconds, leave us a five-star rating. And if you're feeling super supportive, a quick review as well. You can do that right now. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll find full video episodes, entertaining clips, and the audio reads of every Cigar Thoughts article. This is probably the best way to help the show grow, and growth is going to enable us to bring more of our football discourse your way. So we're grateful for the few seconds it takes to like and subscribe. All right, man, I'm really excited about today's guest because he's not only great to talk to, but is really dialed into the Seahawks and how they operate. He covers the Hawks for ESPN. And the last time we had him on, he had just published his monumental article detailing the events leading up to the Russell Wilson trade. He is Brady Henderson. Brady, thanks for coming back in.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's
0: been a minute. It it has, man. Since the article that rocked the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> now that we're like a year and a half clear of that, man, what was that like for you?
2: Yeah, well, like I was telling you uh, before we came on here, I think that story took a couple of years off of my life just because, um, uh, you know anytime there's that type of story, you know, at ESPN, the editing process is pretty demanding Mm -hmm. as it should be just because that's a a, important topic. And there's a lot of, a lot of sources that were involved in that story, some of them on background. And so, uh, you know, there's certain guidelines that you got to adhere to when you're using, you know, anonymous sources like that. And then uh, just knowing how big of a, of a topic that was going to be. I mean, I, you know, I take my work very seriously as I think a lot of journalists do and, um, just knowing the magnitude of that story, it, it, it really, it honestly, it weighed on me just because I, I, it was very important to me to have everything completely buttoned up in that story. And completely well, yeah, accurate because and there's going to be a
0: lot of people coming after it, right. And exactly. trying to discredit it and trying to say that it's not true. Uh, how nervous were you when you submitted that? Or were you just like, Hey, I I got this thing
2: airtight. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a fun story about that. So, um, I uh, I mean, I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to come from all angles, from people involved in the story, from Denver fans, from just casual NFL fans. Uh, and I ultimately got to a place where I said, I accepted it. And I said, that's fine. That's just the nature of it. And I'll tell you one thing I did. I think that a night or two before the story published, I rewatched one of my favorite movies, which is called Kill the Messenger. And it's about uh, the San Jose Mercury News Reporter named Gary Webb who, you know, a couple of decades ago, he uncovered this just massive, massive story about some really shady stuff involving the CIA and, you know, some Central American um, uh, country that was involved in the drug trade and everything. And so um, the the reason I rewatched it is because, like, it was a lesson to me. It was a reminder to me that at the end of the day, this is just football. This is not, you know. CIA yeah. you know top level stuff like that uh, and it's at the end of the day it's gonna be fine. you just you to deal with the the blowback and uh, the predictable blowback and you know again, I knew that. I could stand by everything that I reported and wrote in the story and I could defend it. And so that was good enough for me.
0: Well, it was one of my favorite pieces of investigative journalism that I've ever read. And uh, Thank you. it was really cool to just have you on kind of right after that. <laughs> but uh, now that the dust has settled from that, there's, there's different stuff going on in Seattle. That's uh, just as big of a deal. And like, Obviously, the coaching search is top of mind for most Seahawks fans right now. But before we dive into that, I do want to get your thoughts on the 2023 season and how it might inform the process of hiring the next coaching staff. Start by telling me what your expectations were for this team coming into the season. And then in what areas did they exceed or fall short of those expectations?
2: Yeah, I, I looked at them as a 10, maybe 11 win team. Um, so they, they underachieved. I, I, I didn't think that they had done enough, nor I didn't think that any team could do enough um, in one offseason to close what was a pretty massive and obvious gap between them and the 49ers. Mm. And it was very evident you know, in 2022, and it was still evident in 2023. That said, I thought the moves that they made, um, that gap shouldn't have been as big as it still was. Right. And not just with the 49ers, but with the Rams and just in general, I thought they underachieved. And so it wasn't a total shock to me that they moved on from Pete Carroll. Um, You know, I thought that even if Carroll had remained, I thought it was possible that he could have fired both of his coordinators just because you don't see teams uh, look at times as hapless on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. uh as they did and maybe hapless is not the right word at least for their yeah. offense i mean their offense was okay yeah maybe not, it is I, I, it's not yeah. not the right word <laughs> yeah i mean they, they they the point is that team underachieved on both sides of the ball and so I, I don't think it was a total shock that uh you know we're here where we're at right now
0: yeah you know for me and i think for a lot of people the biggest thing is the defense and it's it's like an ongoing mystery because Pete Carroll made his hay coming up as a defensive coach. He he broke football uh, with the Legion of Boom team, you know, leading the NFL in points allowed for four straight seasons and, and really coaching something iconic. And then since then, they've just been kind of spinning their wheels on defense. And then this, like, 2022, I didn't think it was possible for the run defense to be worse than what yeah. we saw then. Yeah. And they made some moves – To potentially shore that up, and for half the season, they were doing a pretty good job. Then from the Ravens game on, I mean, they looked so, I don't know if it was underprepared or outmanned or what. So if if we focus on the defense to you, and and let's just call it, they they were bad for the last two months of the season. Is that more of a personnel issue? Is that more of a coaching issue? they I mean, how how much does the WOSU injury affect that, and how much should an injury affect, to a guy like Uchenna Nwosu affect how good a, a defense can be.
2: Yeah, th- I mean, he's their best defensive player, in my opinion. And, and maybe, you know, David Witherspoon is overtaking mm-hmm. him. But it, it, any team that loses a guy of that caliber and who is that important to what they do up front, yeah, it's it's going to sting. But I that certainly does not explain all of it. Um, it. It is really hard to kind of put your finger on it. And certainly you had guys underperforming. Certainly they were undermanned in some spots. Um, I think that Jamal Adams, the the extent, the amount that he played was problematic. And especially when it was clear that he just was not himself. And, you know, eventually they, um, you know, they went with Julian Love in that spot. And Julian Love had two interceptions, you know, and helped them win the Philadelphia game. So I think, I think if they had to do it all over again, I think they would have... They would have made that switch earlier and um and look, it's not like you had to shut Adams down, but I don't understand why he was playing as much as he was, considering how physically limited he was so um that w- and I think to an extent too like you know sticking with woolen as long as they did now he got better as the season went on as and the coverage I think got better, but you know putting my I, I think they should have kind of sent that message earlier and gave given Mike Jackson more playing time there, knowing that you know Jackson does really well the thing that Tariq Woolen does not do well, which is tackling. So there were some personnel moves. I, I just I, I question whether or not the scheme is is you know is the right one. Uh I, I think last year you could have said, okay, the scheme, you know, they're trying to install it largely in one offseason with a lot of new pieces. So Maybe you could give them a pass for last season, but this past season and your second year uh, there with, I think, you know, second year of the coordinator, um, you just that, – that excuse runs out. And I just think that, you know, in the big picture sense, like this team had tried everything on defense, you know, for the yeah. last well, seven eight years. that's
0: and, the thing. It does feel yeah. like they tried different stuff. It, it wasn't, in my mind, stubbornness. On the part of Pete Carroll or Clint Hurt. I think they were like, okay, this isn't working. Let's try something else. And that's fine. I, I really admire, because I think it's necessary, uh, the ability and the willingness to pivot strategically if you need to. That said, nothing they tried worked. And yeah. in that, in in my mind, if I had to, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in a bit. In my mind, it's the inability of that defense to even be good not even get back to great but good that for me would if the decision was to move on from Pete Carroll that that would have ranked at the top but I want to circle back to Jamal Adams what the hell happened there in the last month of the season
2: I think the injury just caught up to him and it was everybody in that building knew and Adams knew himself that this season was going to be a challenge that the injury that he suffered that the torn quad tendon is not like your typical ACL injury. No, it's uh,
0: a, it's one of the worst injuries you can a, get in football.
2: It's brutal. Yeah. I mean, some guys don't come back from it. It's not a very common injury. Um, and it's a very difficult injury and I, everybody realized that this season was going to be a struggle for him and, and nobody expected him to be ready by the start of the season and nobody expected him to, to be, you know, a, a like the injury was going to be behind him completely. And so, um, I think that frustration and constantly having to deal with, I think that kind of spilled over into some of the stuff that happened with Adams off the field, on the sideline. That's not to say that I gave him a pass for that because some of that stuff was pretty ugly. But um, I just think that this was a very challenging season for him in a lot of ways, starting with just the fact that he physically was not right. Are they done with him? I think... Think so, but I don't. I don't know for sure. I mean, certainly you cannot have him back on what the contract as is, which is scheduled to count. I think twenty-seven million dollars. Yeah, yes. The salary cap. I mean, for a guy who has not recorded a sack in over three calendar years, uh, and a guy who you know hasn't played a full season in that span either. You, you just there's no way in my mind. I I, I give it a zero point zero percent chance that he is back on the same contract. Yeah. Um, now the the challenge is what what do you do with the contract? It's not like you know it's one thing. You can lower a guy's cap number if it's a, a young guy who's like performing, and maybe you give him a new deal. Maybe you um, you know restructure it to where you kind of push some of the cap charges into the future. It's not really that easy. It's not that simple with a guy in Adam's situation. And so um, I just don't know. I I could very much see them just you know washing their hands completely of it, moving on, saying. They gave it their best shot and it didn't work. I could also see maybe a, a defensive-minded head coach comes in and and convinces John Schneider that he can get Adams back to being you know the ten sack guy that he was in two thousand twenty. But again, that was three years ago. It's it's been a long time since yeah. he's really been a factor on defense.
0: Yeah, I think he you know whoever comes in to coach this team is gonna that's gonna have a huge impact on whether Jamal Adams is around and if so in what role, because to me, it's, it's almost feeling like just move this guy into the box. Like we've had issues, you know, the Seattle's had issues at linebacker and while he may not be an excellent coverage safety, he's going to be an average to above average coverage linebacker. We know he can set the edge. We know the importance of that. Um, He's, he's built for playing in the box. Be curious to see if if they bring you know whoever the new defensive coordinator is, or if it's a defensive coach that they hire uh, to run the show. What they do with that? Because yeah, that that contracts an albatross at this point. Uh, switching to the other side of the ball, you know, in, unless honestly, unless you have Patrick Mahomes, uh, quarterback becomes an issue. I mean, listen to the way they're talking about Josh Allen and Jalen Hurts right now, yeah. Justin Herbert. You know, like these are all quarterbacks. Seahawks fans would kill to have, and and even they are, are dealing with are they good enough? Can they get them over the hump? Right. All that stuff. Looking at Gino, he's he's a bit of a lightning rod. Like I said, quarterback's gonna be in in a lot of fan bases. How do you feel he did? Because we've seen plenty of uh quarterbacks come in, a case keen and Nick Foles have a really good season after kind of being a backup for a long time. And then you wonder, like, are they gonna be able to keep this up? Uh how do you feel Gino did in year two as a starter?
2: He was so, so and look, I, I just think that the the larger conversation about Gino is difficult for a lot of people to have, because we live in this, this era of like social media reaction where you're either the goat or you're trash mm-hmm. and, and there's no in between, but there's a huge swath of that in between. And I think Gino falls in between that. I mean, at, at times he can play like a top 10 quarterback at times, he does not play like a top 10 quarterback. And look, I, I think he's, he's clearly not one of those quarterbacks and and not to say that there are many of these guys. Um, he's not a quarterback who can carry a team and make up for issues when, you know, everything's going wrong around you. And, and again, that's not like a huge criticism of him because there's not that many guys can do that. I mean, even Patrick Mahomes, like he had a, a pretty crummy receiver core this season outside of Rasheed Rice. Like those guys were dropping passes left and right. And, He was affected by that, and so um, you know, there's not a whole lot of guys that can thrive even when everything is going wrong around him. And the key showed this season that you know you didn't have a consistent run game. You dealt with you know you had two productive uh, one especially rookie receivers, but some of the issues that Geno had I think were products of the growing pains that those rookie receivers had. You had you know nine different starting combinations. Uh, on their offensive line, the defense that, you know, couldn't get off the field and didn't give the offense enough time. So um, I, I look at Gino's season, like, and there's no doubt that statistically he regressed. Uh, a lot of that was due to what was going on around him. So I think that is part of the, the you know, context of what the Seahawks have, which, you know, I think there's very much a long-term question about, you know, is he the guy, Um and I think they ha- could have to confront that question this off season. It's not going to be easy per se uh, to move on from him just because of some of the contract particulars and the timing of all that. Um, but I don't think it's out of the question at all that they could move on from him. I, I could also see them, you know, giving it another shot with him, seeing if a new offensive or seeing if a new coach slash offensive system could try to get him back to his best form because he's had he's had two really good halves of seasons in the last two years the first half of 22 and the second half really this the last you know third of the season uh in 2023 so he's shown that he can do it I I, and I wonder if they'll be tempted to say you know let's see what a new coach a new system if they can you know put a full season together with him
1: we've talked for a while about how the NFC this season was weaker than it normally is and I think that's kind of a function of the NFL's quarterback landscape at this point. Obviously, Mm. there's more that goes Mm -hmm. into it. But if you lay out your ranking of all the NFL quarterbacks, the vast majority of your top 10 resides in the AFC. So looking at the quarterbacks in the NFC, how many of them are you taking over Geno Smith in 2024? This is just for one season. This is, I guess you just drop them into... You, you drop them all into the same situation. You say, yeah, I guess you have Seattle's weapons. Which quarterbacks are you Ooh. trading Geno Smith for, net, like in a bottle? Straight up, season? one well, for are, one. So,
2: okay. Yeah. Are you trading the contracts too? Or is this just if you're. No, nah, like let's, let's say the money is equal. I guess even. just
1: like which quarterback do you. Th- the the money is equal, and who do you think has the best chance to win the most games next season?
2: Oh, gosh. That's a really good one.
0: I, to me there's two that are clearly ahead and then I think you start having discussions. Yeah. And for me that's Hertz and Stafford. No Dak. I think you're having the I, I would take Dak over Geno. I would take it it's less clear than the first two, but I would take Dak over Gino.
2: Yep. Yeah, and, and with if you if this is just a one year proposition then you're not worried about Matthew Stafford's age and, and he's, you know, still one right. of the most talented quarterbacks in the NFL, even if He's getting up there in age, and he's getting kind of banged up. Um, yeah, is are there any others? I'm just going through the. Each where do where do there.
1: Jared Goff and Brock Purdy fall into this mix for you guys? Mm.
2: Okay, so here's so real,
0: here's this yeah. next tier for me. It's now you're talking Kirk Cousins, talking Jordan Love, Jared Goff, Brock Purdy, and I think those are all the guys that I would put like comfortably in Geno's tier. Baker Mayfield had a great season. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm. I'd make that trade straight up, but no. I don't know. Am I missing someone from that tier, Brady?
2: Uh, I mean, Kyler. Derek, I'm just Kyler. Kyler. I would yeah, take Kyler. Kyler over Geno. Yeah, Derek Carr. I would not take Derek Carr over Geno. Um, certainly not whoever is playing quarterback for Atlanta. Certainly not Bryce Young. Um,
1: no, Sam Howell.
2: <laughs> no, Sam Howell. No, I think they should have drafted Sam Howell a couple of years ago. Would you take? Would
0: you trade for one season? Would you trade Geno Smith straight up for Justin Fields?
2: <laughs> um, and the con- no, the contract doesn't come into it.
0: All these quarterbacks because get I Geno's contract. Fields
2: is so young and so mobile, it would be intriguing. But if I if I've got to win that one season, no, I don't think I. Would. Yeah, I
0: don't. I don't think so either. All right, I've got four for sure. I'm I'm taking over uh, Gino, and then I'm probably still Kirk. Um, but I think they're I think that they're like peers. Um, Jordan Love is is to me the most interesting one. Yeah, like because I, I wasn't a Jordan further. Love guy, and right. you know now I feel a little sheepish about that. But he looks awesome. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, how, I mean, how could anybody be a Jordan Love guy before this season? I mean, he he had hardly honestly play. like I, I before
0: w- November, it was hard to be a Jordan Love guy, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I, uh, yeah, I wish I hadn't seen him throw that last pass in the divisional round, which was just all sorts of ill advised. But yeah, I mean, he looks like he could be one of the next real, real big time quarterbacks, and not just in the NFC, but in the NFL. And I, I think the the larger point that you're getting at here is a good one. That you know, as much as it, it, I think it's easy for fans and observers to hyper focus on the quarterback issue, on the team that they root for, or in my case, cover, and to to just think that it'd be so easy to upgrade. But you know, this is a conversation that a lot of other you know observers, fans, reporters are having about you know the d- quarterbacks from other teams, and so it's it's a hard position to play. There's not a whole lot. There's not like you know the the upgrade is just right around the corner.
0: Brock Purdy or Geno Smith.
2: For one season,
0: for one season on the Seahawks,
2: on the Seahawks, I, th- I mean, it's uh...
1: that's the look of a man thinking about all the internet. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. No, you, <laughs> no t- the internet That's, say that's the hole hole. I, I just, statement comes I really feel
0: mouth. that Brock Purdy is like a Rorschach test, right? Like what, whatever yeah. it is that he's, he's the ink blot on the paper. And then you project whatever you feel about NFL quarterbacks onto him. And you know, I was I was texting with uh, Danny and Mina about this uh, yesterday, actually. And I said, you know, Brock Purdy should be this wonderful opportunity for us to really explore the different ways to be successful in the NFL. And instead we're stuck with a discourse that is just making all of us dumber.
2: <laughs> yeah. Is he a game manager? What, you know, right. Cam Newton kind of reignited that debate. I don't know. I mean, I, I one of my uh, best friends at ESPN is our 49ers guy. And he has made the point that, you know, the narrative that Brock Purdy is just dumping the ball off Mm-mm. to receivers and watching them, you know, run 30 yards after the catch every time. That's just not the case. I mean, he's, he's not Jimmy Garoppolo. That's field. for sure. He's not, yeah. And, and he's, you know, I know he had the elbow injury, but he's healthier than Jimmy Garoppolo. He's, I think he's more mobile than Jimmy Garoppolo. Maybe he doesn't have the arm strength. Uh, uh, and, and I mean, going back to the Geno versus Brock Purdy, I mean, Geno is a more talented quarterback than Purdy. There's no doubt about that. But Purdy, he gets it done. And it's not just, you know, dumping the ball off, he's pushing the ball downfield with, yeah. with a lot of quarterbacks.
0: Yeah. And, and look, the numbers are, are undeniable. And at the end of the day, like, You want to talk MVP. You you, you can't just ignore the numbers because of, you know, whatever you feel. Yeah, he's in an amazing situation. I just feel like Gino's putting up those numbers too (laughs) if you drop him into that offense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Again, a more talented guy. Um, You know, Gino is not like a, you know, he's not the dual threat quarterback, but he can run and he's got an arm and we saw, didn't see it as much this season just because Seattle's offense didn't push the ball downfield as much. I think, that probably had a lot to do with the fact that the O line situation was um, just in flux, and and I wonder if you know Shane Waldron trusted those guys to hold up in pass protection enough to have those kind of deep play action shots that uh, were really a staple of that offense, you know, Russell Wilson days, but also you know the first half of what Geno did in 2022, and so there there weren't as many of those plays, but Geno still got the arm, man, and and. Uh, that that's the it. it goes back to the, the the conversation of potentially replacing him like for his faults uh, and for as shaky as he was like the guy still has some talent and I wonder what he could do with a you know different coaches around him different situation around him.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because you said earlier in the show you weren't shocked that the team decided to move on from Pete Carroll. My my initial reaction was like holy shit. Like they did it you know um, and once that settled it, it was an emotional 48 hours for me those listening to the show and, and who read my stuff know what a personal impact Pete Carroll's approach and success had on me as as a husband as a professional but um, you know I also totally understand that you know maybe the time had just come so look it's been a couple of weeks the dust has settled a bit do you chalk the decision? to move on from Pete Carroll to the team, just not winning enough games. Or do you think there was something more there?
2: I think there was a recognition from ownership that things had just gotten stagnant Mm -hmm. and that they had lost their edge. And, And, you know, I think Pete Carroll had an interesting comment about that in his farewell press conference about, you know, why, why had, why had the direction of the team gone the way it had? And he said that they had lost their edge to be great in the run game. Um, and in playing defense, and there just really wasn't anything that this team had been able to hang its hat on uh, over the last few seasons. Now, I, I think that this decision was Jody Allen's, um, but I also don't think that I think that John Schneider was ready to uh, to run his own show and to have personnel control. Uh, and I wonder if I think Carol alluded to um, on his radio show that you know there had been that conversation in recent years about. You know, was it was it nearing time for the roles to kind of switch there, and for Carol to give that final say up? I think I think there's been pretty big decisions uh, over the last few years that would have gone differently mm-hmm. had um, had it been a more traditional power structure where the GM has final say, and so. Um, can you give Can you give yeah, an yeah, example mean, of one it, of those? Um, I think Nick Chubb, uh, Rashad Penny over Nick Chubb. In 2018, I think that's one of them. I, I think that bringing Bobby Wagner back, and that's not to say that, that this move didn't work out, but bringing Bobby Wagner back, that was very much a Pete Carroll move and not a John Schneider mm-hmm. move. Um, and that's not to say that every move... That's not to say, A, that Carroll has made every single move on his own, nor is it to say that the moves that Schneider was the driving force behind, and Schneider and the scouting department, that's not to say that you know they batted a 1,000 on all of, of those moves. Um, so... Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard when you're talking about decisions at the top of this organization, it's really hard to get a a 100% feel on it just because nobody's got an end to Jody Allen and, you know, she is the mystery of all mysteries in terms of NFL owners. And, um, you know, the only time that we have heard from her was the, you know, kind of boilerplate, you know, um, statement that she put out about, you know, this being the best thing for the organization. And so
0: but make no mistake, um, she is involved as an owner. I mean, she's yes. sitting in the draft room. She's she's not a hands off. Oh, this was my brother's thing. She she's in it.
2: Yeah, and, and Carol even said I think on his final radio show that you know he went into his his end of seating season meetings with Allen you know a few weeks ago, knowing that he was going to get challenged because that's the way it has been in those end of season meetings. And so um, I don't know if Carol was totally caught off guard by this. Um, or totally shocked by it, just knowing that, you know, these, these meetings, um, this is not just, you know, like something on her to-do list that day and, you know, it's some, you know, hey, tell me about how the season, hey, how, how are you going to get better? Like, I think these were really tough meetings. And so, um, yeah, the larger point is that she, she just because we have not heard from her and just because she's been so invisible publicly, Um, that does not mean that she has not been very heavily involved in things behind the scenes.
0: You've been covering John Schneider for a long time now. Um, he, he is now essentially the longest tenured employee in Seattle based on what, you know, what kind of coach do you think Schneider is looking for? And if he called you up and said, Brady, I want you to make the decision for me, which names are you gravitating towards?
2: You know, I like the idea of an offensive minded head coach. and 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 I've talked a lot with Brian uh, Nemhauser about this. and and he's made a good point that you know the the trend in the NFL is pretty clear where offensive coaches, the majority of guys that are getting hired these days, not all not always, but it's offensive coaches. It's an offensive league. so the the where you go from there is that, okay, let's say, you're deciding between an offensive-minded and a defensive-minded head coach. So let's say you you pick the defensive head coach, then you've got to trust that guy uh, to find the right offensive coordinator. Because I think you know a head coach is only as good as the the coordinators and the staff that he builds. So let's say he gets that right, he gets that hire right. Mm-hmm. So the moment that that offense has success, that's right. That coordinator is going to get poached, and so then you're going to have to make that. Dis- you're going to have to make a new hire, and you're going to have to get that hire right again. If all else is equal, meaning if you feel equally strong about the, the offensive head coach and the defensive head coach, let's say in this case it's Dan Quinn versus Ben Johnson, then I think because of that, you you sort of you might as well hire the offensive guy knowing that you're not going to have to replace him. Protect um, the scheme, now, right. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think some people in the NFL will tell you that it's easier to build a defense than an offense. Um you know, I, I also think that another way to look at this is it may not be, and that's what I just said there is maybe an oversimplific, oversimplification. I wonder if Schneider is looking at this coaching search as not just, okay, not just I'm going to hire the, the, the best head coach possible and let him pick the staff. I wonder if he's looking at it as what's the best combination of head coach. And, you know, mm-hmm. his counterpart coordinator. So if it's an offensive head coach, then a defensive coordinator. And I w- look, they, they've cast a very wide net uh, in this search, which is not surprising because that's what this team has done in free agency and draft. And, you know, they always leave no stone unturned. But I wonder if some of these guys that they're bringing in for interviews, I wonder if part of the motivation is that they're maybe not totally consider- considering them as the head coach, but maybe Schneider is vetting them Uh, And in a sense, maybe recruiting them for possible coordinator roles.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, that's a really interesting thought. And something you mentioned earlier about the second that your offensive coordinator or that your offense has success, your coordinator is vulnerable uh, to exactly what's going on right now. Brady, I'm going to ask you a trivia question. Of all the offensive coordinators in 2021, how many are with the same team now?
2: From 2021, how many are with the same team now? As offense I'm guessing coordinator. that you're going to tell me there's not that many. Um, it's probably a very small number. So of the 32, I will say, it's probably you can count them on one hand. I'll say four. Zero.
0: Zero. None of them. None of them. So oh. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, right? Like, this is why I lean offense also. It's what, it's what we want. And, you know, here's the thing. I, I think that the Super Bowl or nothing mindset that I, I think takes up way too much real estate within football discourse has really damaged the conversation about what makes a good team. Because Tom Brady and Bill Belichick obliterated the expectations of what good means. They just kept winning Super Bowls. Winning Super Bowls requires a very good team to be sure, but every champion has had good fortune and or injury luck along the way. Like to me, healthier way of evaluating success is looking at teams that made the divisional round. Are you one of the final eight? Because if you're one of the final eight, you have a legitimate shot of taking a run at this thing. You're in the top 25%. And it also gives you a little bit of a sample size of good to great teams. You can say, okay, what are common denominators here? And the thing that stood out to me about the eight teams that played last weekend, they all have forward thinking offenses. Yes, some of them have great defenses, no question about it. But they all have faster-paced offenses that most of them are a bit more run-heavy. They're more aggressive on fourth down. They play at a quicker pace. They use more motion, all of that stuff. Like, that is a consistency throughout all of the teams that made it that far. And, you know, to your earlier point, like, that's the direction the league is is going. Now, I, I know it's a lot of reading of tea leaves right now there's not any to my knowledge concrete evidence to go off of but do you
2: get a sense that john schneider is leaning one way or the other no (laughs) i really don't and i'm not going to pretend that i do i I, what's interesting to me about this search is what schneider told us at his press conference about a week ago where he said that the one directive from jody allen is that they maintain their positive culture and what strikes me about that is that I I think that that may I think that, that may narrow their options, frankly. Because when I hear that, uh, I I wonder. Okay, let's say it's a guy like Mike Vrabel. Uh, I I don't doubt for a second that John Schneider and Mike Vrabel are would be like would be really aligned, and that those two guys would get along. They both just seem like you know man's men, uh, guys, guys. Like I think those two guys would would vibe together, which is a, a big part of I think. You know what, like what Schneider is going to be looking for is knowing a guy that it's it's got to be a guy that he knows that he can work with. Um, but I wonder if is somebody like Mike Vrabel who has been a head coach, who's been the coach of the year, who's pretty well established in the NFL, is he going to want to come in and adopt someone else's culture and really right. adapt? This, to is what done? this is my thing. This is my thing, right? And
0: like if you go the culture route, it's going to be different culture. Every single player in that locker room knows what the Pete Carroll situation knows that routine. That's a very unique one. And you know, Vrabel's culture is different. Maybe there's some continuity with a Dan Quinn. I th- I think this is what makes Dave Canales an interesting uh potential option as well. There is some continuity there because the way Pete Carroll is Monday through Saturday, I think is excellent. Like I, there's no part of me that wants to replace Monday through Saturday. It's, it's what happens on Sunday that opens it up to discussion and my whole thing is, look, if you're going to fire Pete Carroll, if you're going to fire the most successful coach in franchise history, take a big fucking swing at the next thing. Like, I don't I don't want just more culture, but it's different. Like, the issue, in, from my perspective, is not that Seattle has lost because there's something deficient in the culture. It's on the field. It's the X's and O's. And, like, going right. back to the offensive thing, just look, man, if if it's all the same – Give me an offense that doesn't run at a bottom ten pace in the NFL every year. Like, what happens if you bring someone in and they're say we're going to see what happens if DK Metcalf gets 170 targets this year? You know, like I I would like to see a team just lean into that and and scare the shit out of some opponents.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there's no doubt that this offense underachieved last year, and and a new coordinator is going to have quite a bit to work with, even with the questions about. You know, Geno and the, and the long-term viability of that, but um, I think it's I think it's an attractive job, and I, I think there's there would be a lot for an offensive-minded head coach uh, to come in and work with. And and yeah, back to the point about Dan Quinn, like he, he he's like Vrabel would be, you know, uh, a, a, he's a guy who's done it before. But I don't think this culture would be a big departure for Dan Quinn because he's been in this culture before, and he, you know, probably had a hand in helping build it. Uh, during his, his stint here earlier. And so um, I just think it's, it's culture-wise, it's easier, would be easier for a young first-time guy to do that. And so, I don't know, Ben Johnson has always, from, from the moment I heard Schneider say that, um, Ben Johnson was kind of the guy I had a gut feeling about. Now, I, I don't know if I've seen a report about the Seahawks uh, seeking a second interview with him Maybe that has something to do with the timing and the fact that um, you know he's playing, Lions are playing uh, in the NFC Championship game. But I don't know. Typically, those things, I don't know. I, f- I feel like we would have heard it by now. I, I so I don't know what to make of that. But well, um, and
0: and I feel like I feel like with a guy like Ben Johnson, you have to do as much selling seattle on him as he does having to sell have himself options. to seattle because he is at the top of of a lot of lists and i do think Seattle's attractive i i think it's the second most attractive job opening in the nfl because they've got players and most teams that are looking for <clears throat> a, a new head coach stunk last year and the seahawks didn't stink yeah do you think
2: the chargers are, are the are the best job
0: uh, you know, I think the commanders are, and it's funny. Cigar thoughts timing comes through once again. Uh, it was just announced that Jim Harbaugh has taken the Chargers' yeah. job. So, if if that was considered, you know, maybe a more attractive landing spot because of Justin Herbert, because of the location, it's off the table now.
2: Yeah, yeah, and there and there was some smoke, some kind of out of nowhere smoke about uh, recently about Pete Carroll supposedly making a push mm-hmm. for the chargers job and i wondered if that was the chargers leaking that out there to try to you know give harbaugh a kick in the butt and say hey uh if you don't hurry up and take this offer that we've had on the table then your old nemesis might come in here and make things interesting that was so, my exact uh,
0: same thought when i saw that report. Was it really? <laughs> i was yeah. like
2: that is pure like dean spanos
0: leverage right there yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I I think Carroll w- uh, would want to coach. I think he's going to end up being a coach again at some point. And I we, I thought that the Chargers, if if there was any opening this offseason, that would make sense for him. Uh, it'd be the Chargers just because of the L.A. connection totally. and the fact that the roster totally. is pretty strong. But uh, I I don't know how willing he would be to sign up for, to, to coach for the Spanos family. But uh, anyways, that's funny that we both had the same thought on that, <laughs> that kind of rumor. There.
0: Totally. And like to your point about. You know, I, I hate the term retread. It sounds like it makes any previous NFL HUD coach sound like a total bum when you call him a retread, yeah. but whatever, that's the term that gets used. So when I'm thinking about, you know, an unproven coordinator versus a retread, you know, my buddy Tyson and I were, <laughs> we watching the playoff games of Buffalo wild wings past weekend. We were talking about this and, and we went through team by team and looked at their head coaches. Okay. how they, how did they get hired? Were they a coordinator or did they have previous head coaching experience? And honestly man, the the track record of NFL coaches that had been fired from a previous head coaching job is not great. Like yes, you have Andy Reid and depending on your feelings on like Mike McCarthy or Doug Peterson, Modicum of success there. But for the most part, it doesn't go super well. But by the same token, that was Pete Carroll too, obviously with like yeah. a decade interlude there in college. But for me it's just like the, the conventional wisdom is, well, if you get a guy who's done it before, you're providing some sort of floor, right? Like, it's not going to bottom out. But that's really not the case when you really go team by team. And I think that if you're not protecting a floor by going with a known commodity, shoot for the ceiling. And let's try and find... The next D'Amico Ryans. Let's try and find the next Mike McDaniel, whoever. The next Sean McVay, of course, is what everyone wants. Shanahan was a coordinator uh, ahead of time. Harbaugh was a special teams coach. So, like, I mean, this stuff, it it just feels like when I look at the very best teams in the NFL, the ones that I want Seattle to emulate and eventually beat, they're guys that hired hotshot coordinators.
2: Yeah, I, I think the one thing that's encouraging for the Seahawks about this situation that they're in is that this is a football guy in John Schneider mm-hmm. who's making this decision. This is not an owner who is, you know, and I'm not speaking specifically about their owner, but just the fact that, you know, you have owners a lot of, in a lot of places who are in charge of hiring the head coach who... You know, I sort of—I don't really like this term. Like, and Pete Carroll used it uh, as he was railing against the fact that he was fired. But he, yeah. he said that decision was made by people who aren't football people. Yes. But I think when you're hiring a coach, like, it helps to have. Like, you would much rather have John Schneider making that decision than, you know, somebody who's just not that heavily involved in football. And so, That's right. um, yeah. And and look, Schneider—he's been around the NFL a long time. He's got a ton of connections. Um, I, I don't know if he's going to get more than one shot to get this right. So there is a lot of pressure on him, but I, I would feel better about having somebody like him make this decision than an owner who is, you know, maybe more prone to, you know, being sold by kind of flash, you yeah. know, or being sold by, you know, who's going to put butts in the seats, who's going to get people talking about the team. That's because that for always mean. totally for every
0: McVay, you have uh, Brandon Staley, you have for every Shanahan, you have a Cliff Kingsbury, right? Like yeah, these guys who haven't been NFL head coaches before and they're just, they're not, they're not it. But yeah, I, would be really curious. Uh, one last question. Cause I do want to talk about the teams that are left in the playoffs with you too, because if there's one thing I know about you, yeah, you cover the Seahawks, but you are a football guy. And as I often say on, on this show, I'm a football fan first and the Seahawks fan second. Um, but, one thing that I do want to ask you is how fragile do you think John Schneider's position is right now? Like if this, if, if it's a under another underwhelming season, call it any missed playoffs. Is he on the hot seat?
2: Again, it's so hard to know what, like anytime we're talking about a decision like this at the ownership level, it's really hard to say with any level of authority, just because it's not like, you know, uh, jerry jones who sort of wears his thoughts on his sleeves and you know yeah we don't we have jim we, and,
0: owning this team
2: <laughs> yeah i mean everybody knows that that mike mccarthy is on the hottest of hot seats uh, uh, kevin clark had a great line the other day on twitter where he said nobody has ever been more pre-fired than, than mike McCarthy. <laughs> <season."> <laughs> like totally. it's obvious with some teams it's it's just such a mystery uh with this team i, I think just uh, venturing a guess i mean Look, Schneider has always had like the the sort of excuse and I think there's some truth to it that look, he's put together a really good team, a, a good enough roster in the last I would say this past year like this roster was better than a 9-win team and that you know the blame should fall on the coaching staff for not getting enough out of that roster. Well, when you then hire the coach, if that happens again, then ultimately that comes back on you because you're the guy who hired that coach. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure on him. Is he, is it a make or break season? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't guess. So, I mean, maybe if they bought him out, anything can happen, but, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't imagine that he is on a high. If, if Jody Allen trusted him enough to make this decision and to be the, the head of the franchise and to have, personnel say which actually i believe was built into the contract he signed a couple years right. ago but she could have fired him uh, uh, while firing pete carroll as well so the fact that she is trusting him to run the organization that to me tells me that um he's got a little longer leash than just one bad season
0: yeah yeah well listen you know another thing i know about you is you're you're not just gonna speculate recklessly and i i do appreciate that but the same same token stepping away from seattle there's four teams left in the NFL, and I'm, like, thrilled with the four teams that are left. And and I still would have been whoever won that that Chiefs-Bills uh, game, which another classic, right? But, you know, on the AFC side, you're getting pure quarterback porn, like yeah. <laughs> Mahomes versus Lamar. You know, Lamar's probably MVP this year. Uh, Mahomes is considered the best quarterback in the NFL. I think that is super, super fascinating. And on the other side, you've got, like, these two coaches that have completely transformed the teams that they coach, right? It's not about one specific. When you think about the Lions, I think a lot of people think about Dan Campbell before they think about any specific player. And and with the 49ers, I mean, they've got so many all pros, but like this, is, the fact that the Brock Purdy discussion is a thing is because Shanahan has built a Death Star over there. So you're looking at these teams, the 49ers, the Lions, the Ravens, The Chiefs, again, (laughs) they're just inevitable. What has surprised you most about the playoffs so far?
2: What has surprised me? I mean, the Cowboys getting bounced in in the first round was surprising. and Maybe it Mm -hmm. shouldn't totally be just because of their history of just pretty epic playoff flubs, but um, that was one of them. I mean, Jordan Love uh, as a first-time starter taking his team to the brink of the NFC Championship game was another one. And again, that, that, I mean, that throw he made at the end of that game was, was all sorts of horrific, but the guy, I mean, the, the, the second half baller. of the season that he had, yeah, total baller. So he's a dog, those would be man. the two things he is. Yeah. And, and I just, I don't know, there's something, there's something kind of admirable about him where he just doesn't seem like a, a flashy look at me guy. He just sort of seems like a green Bay, you know, small town kind of quarterback. Um, and, totally. Uh, well, let's
0: let's let's yeah. talk about this for a second. I'm so I'm so glad you brought up Jordan Love and Green Bay because I, I do think there's some relevance to Seattle here in that you know everyone looks at Green Bay like, oh my god, they did it again, another great quarterback. All these other teams are just like, what the fuck? We're constantly looking for that next guy. Yeah. But it's not like it's just by chance, you know, with the new collective bargaining agreement, the greatest value in all of American sport is a good quarterback on a rookie contract. So if you draft a rookie quarterback, it's like, "Hey, get him in there. Don't waste these cheap years. Get him in there." The Packers have been like, "Fuck that." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to get like 3 years ahead of this and draft our next guy and let him sit. And it's like, "Okay." So if you're kind of on the fence with Geno and he's a lot easier to move on from contractually after this year than he is before this year is this the time where you draft a guy in the middle of the first round and let him sit for a year or two and learn and just swallow that perceived value in the hopes that they develop in a way that uh a lot of times guys who are just thrust right in don't
2: i think it's a lot easier for somebody like me to say yeah they should do it and and I, (laughs) i i can confidently say that they should have they they should have taken more quarterbacks than the two that they've drafted in the fourteen years that Carroll and Schneider have been here. I for the life of me can't figure out why that number is what it is considering where Schneider came from. You know, Green Bay organization totally. that under Ron Wolf was exactly taking quarterbacks pick. yeah, almost every year. Now look I, I think it can be easier said than done. Like that was not an easy decision for them to do that, for Green Bay to do that with you know Jordan Love with Aaron Rodgers still there. I mean, there's some awkwardness that you've got to to get over. Uh, you've got a you know, you've got a quarterback, uh, the veteran guy who's going to be ticked off at that, uh, and then you're also you know sacrificing an early draft pick on a position that you know is not going to play for at least a year if he ever really pans out at all. So it's those are the decisions that teams like the Seahawks weigh when, when they're faced with that decision. I mean, it's it, look, if you, if that guy is guaranteed to be Aaron Rodgers or guaranteed to even look like what Jordan love has looked like this past season, then yeah, uh, they would do that. But it's,
0: it's so it's hard, hard because you have other needs, right? Faith.
2: Like right. that's, exactly. that's,
0: that's the thing is like, okay, let's say they use the 16th pick on a Michael Penix or a Bo Nix or JJ McCarthy. It's like, well, Shit, man! We need linemen. <laughs> right.
2: We need a linebacker. Yeah.
0: We might need a safety.
2: Yeah, and, and look, you can get over the the awkwardness. I think Gino, as confident as he is, and knowing that, I, I think you know he he's realistically knows that, like, yeah, he was up and down this season, and this is this is what happens in the NFL. Like, you when you play like that and you don't have the type of season you had the year before, then you know there's going to be some question about your job security, and the team is going to want to look at other options. That you can get over that awkwardness. It, it's harder though to just bypass, you know, a guy who you would you would know was going to come in and help you at a position. That's right. Uh, of need, and so um, I, I know like Mel Kiper Jr. in his first mock draft, I think he had J.J. McCarthy uh, going to this Ugh. box at 16. I mean, I I, I could see I don't that. Love it. <laughs> I, I I could see that a lot more if Pete Carroll were still the head coach because J.J. McCarthy looks a lot more like a Pete Carroll quarterback. Uh, than he does a John Schneider quarterback, meaning a guy who, you know, played and played really well the role of point guard at Michigan. 44 touchdown Mm -hmm. passes, nine interceptions over the past two years. That was a Michigan offense that totally leaned on the run game. Um, And that's not to say that he can't uh, carry an offense in the NFL, but based on what he's asked to do, he looks more like a Pete Carroll quarterback as opposed to the quarterbacks that we know that John Schneider has had an affinity for. I mean, John Schneider tried to trade uh, Russell Wilson to the Browns in 2018 because he wanted to draft uh, Josh Allen, number one overall, uh, yes. uh, you know, Drew Locke for, for all of you know his, you know, kind of shaky resume. Like Drew Locke is a very toolsy kind of prototypical, big armed uh, quarterback. And so, um, a, you know, and, and uh, another gunslinger like Josh Allen. So, um those you are do kind get of the, the sense the, the that Sh- the got Schneider likes that guy. He he likes that yeah. that prototype.
0: That that to me is is what's so fascinating about all of this. Now that Pete Carroll is out of the picture, because it's like I think Geno is good enough. Question becomes: Is good enough good enough?
2: Yeah, yeah. And and look, I mean, I think the reason Schneider gravitates towards those quarterbacks is look at the quarterback who was in green Bay when he was coming up there, it, it was the ultimate gunslinger in Brett <laughs> and the guy with the cannon for an arm. So Dude, and the NFL John Wayne. He, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, he also drafted Russell Wilson, who was not that prototypical prototypical guy and who played with a very strong governor on him, you know, and wasn't the, the gunslinger. Um, so that's not to say that he's got one type and one type only, but, um, yeah, I mean, going back to a guy like McCarthy, he, he you know, and, and maybe he shows that he's got a lot of those tools, but just based on resume, I, I would see that more if Carroll were the coach um, than if Schneider were making the decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. Look, Mike's going to get pissed at me because he wants me to move along, <laughs> but I got <laughs> okay. one more question for you before, before we do. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, do you, how confident are you that the Seahawks would have taken a quarterback at five this past year if one of Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, or Anthony Richardson had made it there.
2: Well, in that scenario, I, I know this. I know that Will Anderson Jr. was was the guy that they really wanted. And yeah. that Witherspoon I heard was the same. A close second. Um if one of those guys were there. I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, because th- this is one of those things that's hard because you talk to people and it's like, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we love that guy. We love C.J. Stroud. Oh, well, I'm sure you, yeah, it's easy to say that now. Um, and, and I didn't hear, uh, I didn't get a great feel for what they were going to do before just because things tend to get tight um, and people play things close to the vest. So I know after the fact, you know, I, I don't think that they would have taken Richardson. Had he been there, if it was between Oh, interesting uh, Witherspoon and Richardson, I think they would have stuck with Witherspoon. I and okay. I think that they, I think that wasn't so much a reflection on Richardson. I think they thought he had the talent to to you know justify that kind of pick. But I think that they viewed it as kind of a value um, question. And and maybe this goes back to the idea of do you draft a quarterback when you got your starter in place? Do you draft a quarterback knowing that? He's gonna to have to sit for a year. I think they just didn't feel like value wise it made sense to to spend that kind of money the the money that would come with the Top overall five pick. pick right yeah on on a guy who you know was going to be a backup for at least a year and was going to have to develop because they had already you know resigned Gino Gino was going to be here for at least a year um and I think that that was I just don't think they thought it made sense value wise you know the the question of whether or not he had the talent to justify that pick. That was totally separate, and I think that they thought he was worthy of that kind of pick, but it was a value decision. So would they have drafted Stroud or Bryce Young if one of those guys were there? I kind of think so. Um, I just don't know. It's it's really hard to say. Yeah, of course. Uh, hypotheticals are fun.
0: But something that's not hypothetical are the four teams that are remaining. So last thing before I let you get out of here, 49ers, Lions, Ravens, Chiefs, who wins this weekend? And – if there was a $10,000 reward for getting the Super Bowl winner and loser correct exactly, what would be your guess?
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be Ravens uh 49ers. It's and it's then, the
0: Super Bowl the NFL deserves this year.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, we we've seen that matchup, so I think we we know I think I don't know how you could pick 49ers, although I mean they are a loaded team. Uh but we saw how that went on Christmas night, and it was not pretty. So the, the, were you asking the $10,000 question? $10,000 question, who wins
0: the Super Bowl, who loses the Super Bowl. you got to get both teams right.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be Baltimore over San Francisco. I, I, I think that Detroit is going to be able to keep it close just because Dan Campbell is going to will them to keep it close. And it, you know San Francisco may not have Debo, who is a huge part of their offense, but I think San Francisco is going to win – uh Baltimore is gonna beat Kansas City and then Baltimore is gonna win the Super Bowl over the 49ers.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's so funny. I was thinking, I was like, all right, if it is Baltimore or San Francisco, we've already seen this. Let's, you know, that, that's an easy Baltimore take. Then I remember the three thousand dollars I lost betting the Chiefs over the Bucs because the <laughs> Chiefs had beat the Bucs by 30 points in the regular season. <laughs> so it's it's funny what two weeks of prep can do especially when teams already whipped your ass and you can just grind down on that film because a guy like shanahan's gonna say like oh yeah could have done that different could have done that different could have done that different three big plays go differently that's a totally different game entirely
2: yeah and if i remember correctly didn't trent williams get hurt late in that game
0: yes i think he's gonna be okay but yeah oh i mean he's he's okay now but yeah he was hurt in that game i think they were losing it anyway
2: yeah it probably would have gone that way anyways yeah, and it's a good point. You give a brilliant offensive mind like Kyle Shanahan two weeks, and anything is possible. Even uh, you know overcoming. And look, it's not like you look at those rosters and say the that you know Baltimore has a clear talent advantage. I mean, they've obviously got a talent advantage at quarterback and the MVP and Brock Purdy. But I mean, San Francisco still may have top to bottom a, a just as talented, if not more talented, roster. So. Um, yeah, I don't think you can totally discount the possibility of them winning that game. It's just for me, it's, it's hard to pick it uh, any other way, knowing what happened on Christmas Eve. Dude, but ba- that's why they play the games. It's not like they're going to cancel the Super Bowl just because of what happened on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Right,
0: right, exactly. And the thing is, like, I mean, Baltimore looks completely unbeatable right now. They still got to get past yeah. Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid because here right. they are for the sixth straight season in the AFC. I mean, We we are looking at another Brady Belichick situation and like you wanna be the man, you gotta beat the man. But I'll tell you this much, if they do, Lamar is minted. They win the Super Bowl this year, Lamar's a Hall of Famer.
2: Two MVPs in one Super Bowl in his first six seasons.
0: Yeah. That's a short list and they're all in the Hall of Fame.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can't I can't argue with that. And and you just know there's going to be more too. I mean, dude, oh my god, he's still so
0: young. He's like 26 years old. It's yeah, it's amazing. He must have been
2: 21 years old when he came into the NFL. He's still nowhere near 30 years old.
0: I mean, Lamar's my guy. He's like my favorite player in the league. So I'm I'm all I I would love to see him raising Lombardi, and you know. I would also love to see the 49ers feel like they have to go back to the drawing board. But, uh, you know, that's just me being a Seahawks fan a little bit. Listen, Brady, this has been awesome, man. We are so grateful for your time and your insight. The thing we know is that when we have you on, you're going to bring it. You did it again today. We'd love to have you back on as we move towards what's going to be a very interesting 2024 season.
2: Yeah, let's do it. I really enjoyed talking with you guys. It's been a lot of fun. Let's not wait uh, another year plus to do it again. We should, we should do it again, maybe uh, after the head coaching search or after free agency at some point. You have uh, my we word, We also got to get on the golf course together, Jackson.
0: Guaranteed. Hey, next 18's on me for sure. I promise you that. Listen, uh, last thing, where can the folks listening find more of you and your stuff?
2: Uh, yeah, just go to old Twitter, twitterx.com, at uh, Brady Henderson. So no uh, underscores, no nothing. Just at Brady Henderson.
0: And I know most of the people listening are already following you, but if you're hearing this and you're not, and you're interested in what the Seahawks are doing, absolutely make sure you're following Brady because he's as dialed in as they get.
2: Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks again for having me, guys.
0: All right, y'all. That's going to do it for today. As always, you can find Mike and I on social media as well. I am on Twitter at at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Remember that no K is okay when spelling my name. Mike is on Twitter at @mikebarwin, Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can catch full video episodes on our YouTube channel at Cigar Thoughts and find the rest of our socials at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. This episode is brought to you by Westland Distillery in Seattle, which is my favorite local whiskey maker. If you're watching on YouTube, you've seen me enjoying a glass of their new Cloudburst Cask Exchange, which is smooth as hell and has a unique finish Westland is an American single malt whiskey distillery in the Soto neighborhood of Seattle. Their tasting room and bar are open to the public where they serve whiskey flights, cocktails, and small plates. There's a bottle shop on site featuring distillery, exclusive releases, and more located at 2931 First Avenue, a little over a mile south of Lumen Field. Their Geriana Number no. 8 was just named the number 3 whiskey in the entire world by Whiskey Advocate, so needless to say, I'm stoked to be working with them. And one of the reasons I love their whiskey so much is that they're excellent pairings with a good cigar. And speaking of, we do have our own special release of cigars that you can purchase at a terrific price as a listener of the show. Until now, you've been able to order your own bundle of 10 for just $169, which is less than half of what this blend sells for in cigars on the open market. But because of the success of the Cigar Thoughts release, we are able to lower the price to just $149, and we've decided to keep it there for a while. That's right, only $149 for a bundle of 10. As many of you know, we partnered with one of the most prestigious cigar manufacturers in the world to release these official Cigar Thoughts cigars, which you can order directly from CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Just follow the link on the show page to get these easy-to-smoke stogies rolled with 13-year-age premium Dominican tobacco leaf, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and we'll send you the details directly. The cigars... They come with a Boveda humidification pack and a Mylar storage bag to make sure they stay fresh, whether you have a humidor or not. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. Thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of the show. We know that you've only got so much time for podcasts in your life, and it's an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making this happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends.